Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. The Town Hall Forum originates from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Dan Little, moderator for this Town Hall Forum and pastor in residence here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Co-sponsor of today's forum is the McKnight Foundation. Today's speaker is educator Dr. Crystal Kirkendall, and she will speak on the topic, Strategies for Reclaiming Black and Hispanic Students. Dr. Crystal Kirkendall is a human relations and education expert who has gained national recognition for her efforts to promote problem resolution. President of her own firm, KIRK Kirk, Creative and Innovative Resources for Kids. She produces audio and videotapes, products, publications, workbooks, and learning tools for educators, counselors, administrators, and parents. Dr. Kirkendall is a former school teacher and guidance counselor for minority undergraduates and potential high school dropouts. She provided leadership and services as Educator Director of the National Alliance of Black School Educators. She is a prolific author. She has given presentations to over 1,000 national and international conferences. She is the author of two books, Improving Black Student Achievement Through Enhancing Self-Image and From Rage to Hope, Strategies for Reclaiming Black and Hispanic students. A recipient of numerous awards and citations, Dr. Kirkendall has been a consultant to city and school officials, parents, civic and community groups in over 40 states. Dr. Kirkendall, we welcome you to this podium and to this forum. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dan, and on behalf of um, folks who are listening here, let me just say thank you for sponsoring this particular forum. To all of those who have been responsible for my being here, I also want to say thanks. But most of all, I want to say thanks to those who are not only present, but who are listening in, because truly, we're dealing with a very, very critical issue. While the topic says strategies for reclaiming black and Hispanic students, let me assure you that the strategies I will share today are strategies that can be used to enhance the motivation of all of our children. The reality is our children, whether they're black, brown, pink, blue, yellow, or white, are still our future. And it's important that we understand that for many of these children we serve on a daily basis, the future, as Mark Twain put it, it just ain't what it used to be. I'm concerned. I'm concerned, my friends, because I have been around this country a few times and I've been amazed because I've seen cities and counties, rural communities, suburbs, where children are not only dying, but they're pulling away from mainstream society. Whether we're losing children physically, as many cities are, through homicides and suicides, or whether we're losing our children mentally and emotionally, the truth is the bottom line is still the same. You see, whenever our young people get to a point in their lives where they simply don't believe they're going to succeed legitimately, 
When they get to a point in their lives where they simply don't believe anyone cares, when they get to a point in their lives where they stop believing in the power of their own unique potential to secure a solid future on what I like to call life's high road. You see, when children get to that point in their lives where they simply don't believe they're going to be prepared to make it on that high road of life, believe me, my friends, they will then take whatever skills, whatever ingenuity, whatever creativity they think they have, and when they determine they won't make life's high road, they start down life's low road. And you see, when they start down that low road, we all pay a price. I'm with you today, not because I was looking forward to finally visiting this fabulous church. I'm with you today, not because I enjoy my visits to this great city. But I'm with you, my friends, because truly, it is imperative that we all realize that unless we reach out more to these children who are alienated, we will all pay a price. You see, in my eyes, those of you who are here today, those of you who are listening today, in my eyes, you're listening because of a shared concern. You're not just great folks. In my eyes, you're merchants of hope. Now, if you think about that four-letter word called hope for just a second, you will realize that our children truly need more hope in their lives. This nation of ours is built on that foundation called hope. We have folks who have come to this country leaving behind former lives and they come brimming with something called hope. But the sad truth is we have children born and raised in this country, children who are walking the halls of our schools, roaming the streets of our neighborhoods, and far too many of our children are growing into adolescence and even adulthood without the one thing we know will give their lives more meaning. My friends, when our children grow up with no hope for something better, when they grow up, when they cannot get excited over the promise of their own unique potential, when they grow up with no hope, many will develop anger, others will develop bitterness, others will get frustrated, alienated, and still others will develop something called rage. And what I've seen sweep across this country through the gang associations, through the violence, through the negative thinking, is the kind of alienation, the kind of rage that is destroying so many communities. My friends, as merchants of hope, in this great state called Minnesota, believe me, you have a chance. I don't care where you live, whether you live in the city or a suburb, whether you live in a rural community, the truth is you have a chance in this state. You can avoid the pain, the suffering, the tragic consequences, the unbelievable moral, social, and human decay, which always comes when we lose too many children to life's low road. So I'm going to talk to you from the heart today. I already made up my mind. I'm having a good time here in Minnesota. So I'm going to share with you some insight. And hopefully I will add to your sensitivity. Hopefully I will add to your commitment. Hopefully I will enhance something inside of you that knows it's time to reach out more to our children. The reality is I'm also going to touch a little bit on something called diversity. Because the truth is, many of you are going to be challenged as you have never been challenged before to reach out to children who happen to be different. And you see, I've been around this country a few times and I've been amazed because I'm still meeting people who tell me if you're diverse, you must be deficient. Oh, I've seen those who think if you're different, you have to be deficient. They don't understand we're stronger as a nation because of our differences. This is the one place that is both a melting pot and a salad bowl. I say both because I've seen four or five nationalities represented in one body. Tiger Woods comes to mind almost immediately. 
But we do know we're a salad bowl because in this nation you can maintain your unique cultural and racial and ethnic and religious identity. My friends, it's important that we all understand we're all products of our own culture, our own upbringing. It's not unusual to see others. It's not unusual to see situations. It's not unusual to see people as we've been raised to see them. If you've been raised, for example, believing that blondes have more fun, you might have thought about a hair dye. If you were raised believing that people who wear glasses are smarter than those who don't, you might have bought window panes. But the truth is, when we rise to our true calling as merchants of hope, our challenge then is to step outside of our prior orientation so that we're able to see and appreciate the beauty in those who may have been raised differently. Now, since I'm going to touch on diversity, I've got to make sure everyone here is ready for it. Whenever I talk to an audience, I don't care how large or small, I don't care how young or old, I, I don't care whether I can see you or not. My audience is always required to follow the rules of my culture. And you see, I'm from a culture that believes very strongly in something called response and call. Now, some of you may not be familiar with that term, and that's all right. If you never heard of response and call before, then you're going to be my conservative friends this afternoon. Now, conservative friends only, this is the rule that I want you to follow. If I say something that you know to be true, if you find that you can agree with me and relate to what I'm saying, then conservative friends only. All I want you to do is just nod your head like this. Give me a big smile, I mean a big one, and that will let me know that you hear me and you follow me. Now, let me get a reaction. Only my conservative friends, heads nodding, big smiles. All right, you're looking good. Now, there are others of you, and you know who you are. You are not conservative in the least. You know what I'm talking about when I say response and call. You're going to be my loose friends today. Now, loose friends, don't let me down. Loose friends, I came a long way for a short time on a bad foot. So, loose friends, I've got to know you're with me. Now, loose friends, if I say something that you know to be true, if you find that you can't agree with me and you're able to relate to what I'm saying, they loose friends, it's all right. You can say amen. You can say right on. You can say you go, girl. You can laugh out loud, clap your hands. You can raise the roof. You can go woof, woof, woof. You can do anything that makes you feel most comfortable. Now let me get a reaction now. Please let me get a reaction from all of my loose friends. All right. Now loose friends, don't let me down. And conservative friends, feel free to cross over at any time. But most importantly, keep those heads nodding. The truth is, my friends, if we're serious about reclaiming our young people, we must understand that there are some things we need to do differently. I think W.E.B. Du Bois said it best in 1907. He said, you must become your brother's keeper because if you're not, he'll drag you down in his ruins. Indeed, it was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who reminded us nearly 35 years ago, he said, even in a mountain of despair, we must be able to find a stone of hope. My friends, as merchants of hope, you'll find many stones. But you see, we must understand that for many of us, there are obstacles that keep us from reaching out to our young people. And you see, unless we're prepared to move past these obstacles, we're going to find that our destiny is intertwined with theirs. Because as long as they are hurting, the future for all of us is not secure. So we must move past those obstacles. And you see, my research tells me that there will be some who could reach out to youth, but they're blinded by attitudes that are simply not right. Now, my children often tell me there are some folks who do need a checkup, 
from the neck up. Attitude is a powerful thing. Think about this. You can have a school that is the newest in the state. You can be in a building that has the finest and most expensive landscaping anyone has ever seen. You can have the newest books, a computer at every desk, carpeting this thick in every classroom. But if the attitudes of the adults in that building are wrong, there will be no learning taking place. Attitude is that powerful. And you see, those of us who are not in schools must understand that our children must belong to a community that cares enough to reach out. You see, we must understand it does indeed take a whole village, not just to raise, but to save a child. And whether you teach, if you don't teach, you can tutor, you can mentor, you can be a part of church organizations that provide a sanctuary for recreational out outlets for children after school. Believe me, my friends, if we don't all get involved, we will all share the consequences. So we must move past those obstacles. And you see, my research tells me that there will be some who will not reach out to some children because of something called prior academic achievement. Who is the child who starts kindergarten on the wrong foot? Research says that they start off too slow or too bad in kindergarten, heaven help them. Because all too often, one teacher after another passes the word before the first week of school is over, the cafeteria workers have heard about it, bus drivers know, school nurses have all been put on alert, and everyone starts buzzing. This kid is slow. Now we all know that children learn and grow at different rates. Am I right about that? If you have raised more than one child, I know you know children learn and grow at different rates. I know I learned it. My oldest daughter was eight months old. The girl was walking and talking. We were going, genius, look at this baby. We were inviting all the neighbors by to watch. Come on, you all, watch her walk. Go on, girl, walk for him. We just knew she'd be president by the time she was 35. Now she graduated from college SGA president and she's got her master's and she works on Capitol Hill for a US congressman so you know we're still hopeful. But then my baby came along, 17 months old, we were still going, come on honey, just one step. Now we didn't give up on her. We didn't assume she'd crawl into kindergarten. <laughs> we didn't invite the neighbors by to watch either. <laughs> but the girl not only walks now, she runs like an Olympic queen. My point is, if there's anyone out here who honestly and truly believes that every child who's 10 years old is going to read at 5.0 on exactly the same date and same time, you, you must expect every 10-year-old to be five feet tall and weigh 102 pounds. It's not going to happen. But we've got to know that there will be children in our communities who will come from homes where the motif is survival, where there's still parents who honestly and truly believe they're a part of a community that cares enough to reach out and to help them in their struggle to raise their own children. We've got to know that there will be children in our communities who will come from homes where parents didn't know they were supposed to teach them how to read and write before kindergarten. The truth is, my friends, I could give you numerous examples of men and women who achieved greatness after overcoming a slow start, but those who did it were fortunate enough to have merchants of hope just like you who were willing to be the wind beneath their wings. My friends, if we could move past a prior start, if we can look past children who happen to start slow, if we can understand that children who are bad simply are children who have not been raised properly, if we can understand that as the twig is bent, so the tree is inclined, if we can reach out and help them to mold their lives, my friends, you'll find you'll make a difference not only in that life, you will make a difference in your own as well. But then we have to move past our stereotypes. We have to move past our fears. And understand, my friends, when we become a community that's guided by stereotypes and fears, 
we become a community that's no longer capable of realizing our greatest potential. We also must understand that we have to move past obstacles that keep us from reaching out to children who may have been born into poverty. We do have an obstacle called socioeconomic status. Who all is the child who comes from a home that relatively speaking is very poor. And I say relatively because whether you all know it or not, all of us are broke. Now some of us are just broke at a higher level. Can I get a head nod on that? I'm not the only one in this room who's ever experienced too much month at the end of the money. But my research tells me, my research tells me that there are many who will judge children based on what the daddy does or doesn't do. We must know better by now. I'll never forget I had an audience once and a woman came in late, but she asked me a question. She said, Dr. Kirkendall, you have to admit. She said, Dr. Kirkendall, you probably came from a home where both of your parents set an example laid the foundation for your academic and later your professional success. She said, Dr. Kirkendall, we don't get a chance to work with children who come from such exemplary homes. She said, Dr. Kirkendall, you have to admit you succeeded because of your parents. Well, you know, I did have to be honest in responding and I'd like to share with you my answer. Because when it comes to talking about my parents, I am what you might call a cultural chauvinist. That simply means you can't tell me that I didn't have the best mother in the whole wide world. You can't tell me my mother wasn't the greatest. Now I know everybody feels that way about their mother. But you can't convince me that for me, my mother was not perfect. Now if you're wondering why I put her in past tense, it is because nearly 12 years ago I had the misfortune of burying her. And her death was a tremendous loss. She was my best friend in the whole wide world. She was young, only 56. She was pretty dynamic, truly a joy to be around. But for all that she was, I have to be honest in letting you know there were limitations. But I don't mind telling you I was born to a young mother, 19 years old, one year out of high school. I don't mind letting you know that I was born to a mother who would later become a school crossing guard for over 30 years. That should give you some indication of her income. I don't mind letting you know that I was born on a kitchen table in low-income, two-story housing projects on the west side of Chicago. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been in Chicago, but let me assure you, if you go, please don't go west. It's gotten a lot worse now, but it's still from whence I came. I don't mind telling you that my daddy dropped out of school in seventh grade. Daddy fought in World War II, honorably discharged, received a medal for heroism. But all of my life, my daddy was a disabled veteran. He got a stipend from Veterans Affairs every month. Never was a lot of money, just enough to let him feed a family of five. You see, it was the government that decided that because of his war wounds, he would be 100% government support. Daddy finally succumbed to his war wounds. A little over a year ago, we buried him. But Daddy went out like the hero I always thought he was. He did get a flag draped coffin and he got a 21-gun salute. But while my parents were wonderful, loving people, you see, they had limitations. I didn't have parents who could do my science project on their job. I didn't have parents who could help me out with book reports and term papers and get them typed up by secretaries who could take care of grammatical errors. They could not tutor me to do well on the California Achievements or the Iowa Basics or the SAT or the ACT. In fact, my parents were even intimidated by the PTA. They thought they were too sophisticated. No, my friends, I made a decision to be a teacher because I fell in love in kindergarten. Now, my kindergarten teacher had to weigh 700 pounds. Didn't matter. Sitting on her lap was heaven. We just roll all around in it, lean back. 
Some morning she come in there feeling real good. She spread out, get five of us up there at one time. I'm, and I say this with love because hugging her was like holding a, a giant marshmallow. She was the most wonderful person in, in the world to me. And when I was leaving kindergarten, I had tears streaming down my face because she had shown so much love. In fact, the first day of school, they let us out for recess. I went home. My mother said, what are you doing here? I said, they let us out. But thank God I had a teacher who loved me anyway. And when I was leaving kindergarten with tears streaming down my face, I said, I want to be a teacher just like you. She said, you'll be better than me. And I didn't think you could get any better than that. My friends, the bubble did bust in first grade. Because I had a first grade teacher who came in class rolling up her sleeves and she made eye contact with everybody. Soon as her eyes hit yours, your eyes hit the floor. In first grade, there was no walking, no talking, no showing your white teeth. You didn't even breathe hard for fear of being recognized. But I'm lucky. Because for me, not just teachers, but a nurse at a community clinic. An officer who really was an officer friendly. You see, I'm lucky that when I got ready to start work at the age of 16, that there was an employer with a job corps program who helped me to understand not only how to dress for success, but to carry myself with head high. I'm lucky that I came through at a time when there were still merchants of hope who were willing to reach out. But you see, today's children who are born poor have many more obstacles. You see, when I was growing up, I didn't realize all the negative things that people say about children born into poverty. I had no idea when I was coming up that I was culturally deprived, disadvantaged, and underprivileged. I had, no, I, I had no way of knowing. And then I found out in the 80s they added more adjectives, all of that. Now, in addition to everything else, I realized I was also at risk, latchkey, and came from a dysfunctional family. And they use that word dysfunctional. They want you to know something is seriously wrong. They spell it with a Y. This is definitely bad. Here, I'm sorry. I'm like the poet who once wrote, I don't want anyone ever talking about my horrid childhood. You see, they'll never understand. All the while, I was quite happy. My friends, if we can move past poverty, and you see, if you still buy into that myth that says the apple don't fall far from the tree, if you don't believe that you can be a strong wind to take that apple to greener pastures, let me offer you myself right now as exhibit A in evidence. You're more powerful than you know. If we can get past family income, my research tells me that there will be some who must also get past something called physical attraction. You see, we judge children based on how they look, how they dress, wear their hair, and even how they smell. I'm concerned. I've even heard adults refer to children as FLKs, and I didn't know what that meant at first, and I asked someone, she said, girl, those are the funny-looking kids. Funny-looking kids. Now, right now, you're looking at the original FLK, right here, me. Now, of course, I think I'm fine now. But when I was growing up, I thought I was the ugliest child God had ever created. Even though my parents told me I looked good, you know, it did nothing for my ego. I knew I looked like them. They were supposed to tell me I looked good. In fact, my daddy would look at me and say, she's going to be tall just like my sister Irene. That was my biggest fear. But it took a merchant of hope. A woman not in my family, actually a woman from my church, who helped me to realize that God had put beauty in this poor black girl. My friends, the next time you're tempted to, to refer to children as ugly, keep in mind, Many children believe that too. We're dealing with a nation where teen pregnancy is at an all-time high. There are girls who are risking everything just to find somebody, anybody, who will see and appreciate the beauty inside and the beauty outside. Number one cause of death among black females between the ages of 15 and 24 happens to be AIDS. My friends, there is beauty in and there is beauty out. And we must help these children to find it. 
Now, the next time you're tempted to refer to a child as ugly, just keep in mind, I read a magazine article once, and it did say one out of every four Americans really is ugly. I just want all of you to remember that the very next time you're sitting at a table of four, just remember on any given day, you might be the odd one out. All right, count them up. Everything is relative. Now, if we can get past how they look, dress, wear their hair, or smell, we have to get past language differences. And, and keep in mind, every generation has their own slang. Am I right about that? Believe me, I taught senior English, and I had students who crucified the English language. English was the only language they knew, and they still spoke it as though it were a second language. But I realized way back then, if I was going to teach them, I first had to reach them. And when we, when we send signals to children that suggest we think they're inferior because of how they speak, we wind up exacerbating something called an us versus them mentality. And I've seen what that mentality will do to destroy a community. We must overcome gender preferences. We must move past race. And even within a race, there's color. Now, if we can move past those obstacles that divide us, we must also understand a study out of Yale University found out that young people become delinquent, very often become delinquent because three needs are not met in their legitimate institutions. Keep in mind, our children are in our schools six hours a day, Monday through Friday. Our schools must satisfy these needs, but many of our children are in our communities. All of us must work to satisfy these three needs. The first one is a need for something called affection. Children want to know that they're loved. And the child who has to spend all day in a building where he or she feels no love will exhibit the worst in behavior. And you see, I'm one of those people who understand love is an action word. You see, if you love me, I expect you to show me. And our children are the same way. Now, if you're not into hugging, and I'm a big hugger, if you can't hug children with your arms, learn to hug them with your eyes. And it's an easy thing to do. In fact, before you leave here today, I want everyone to turn to your neighbor on your left and the one on your right. Give them an eye hug before you go home. Understand, the second need that our children bring to us is a need for something called appreciation. They want to know that we appreciate them for where they are right now, not so much where we want them to be next week or 10 years from now, but where they are today. And it is the third need that is the most powerful because my research tells me that all children have a need for something called achievement. Wait a minute, you might be saying, his reading score is 007. Doesn't matter to me, my friends. If we don't give children frequent opportunities to succeed at something legitimate, they will find a way to succeed at something illegitimate, illegal, or immoral. That need for achievement is powerful. What I advocate is that we not only satisfy those three needs, but we won't learn how to build on strengths. You see, you can get children excited about life. You can get them excited about that high road. You can give them hope when you build on strengths. Now, if I were to go around this room and ask everyone in here to tell me something about you that makes you special, something that makes you unique, something you consider to be a strength, I don't think anyone in here would say, oh, that's easy, my strength is higher order thinking. <laughs> if asked for a strength, no one would say spelling. In fact, I happen to know a lot of adults can't spell. I saw a bumper sticker not long ago, and it did say, poor spellers of the world, untie. The truth is, if you ask for a strength, most of you would give me something non-academic. Am I right about that? You might tell me about your compassion, your sensitivity, your good sense of humor, your good looks. Am I hitting anybody? I mean, other than the good looks. Children are people, too. And they bring non-academic strengths into every arena. What we must do is help them to set goals for themselves based on those non-academic strengths. Now, I could get into much more detail about that. But I'm going to take this opportunity to let you know that if you want a lot more detail, you want to get the book, From Rage to Hope. Strategies for Reclaiming Black and Hispanic Students. So those of you who are here today, when this is over, 
I'll be able to tell you more about how to get it. I, I don't have books with me. But those of you who are listening, if you want more information, you can just write Kirk, K-I-R-K, and send an inquiry to P.O. Box 60115. That's Potomac, Maryland, 20859. Keep in mind, my friends, we must not only build on strengths, but we must understand that many of our children, if they have not achieved success, they have something called fear of failure. And you see, fear of failure is such a powerful emotion. When you fear of failure, you won't even try. How many of you have ever been skydiving? See what I mean? Fear of failure. It will keep you from trying. But let me ask you this. Anyone in here ever learned how to ride a bicycle? And you fell down more than once. Am I right about that? But no one ever came over to you and said, Stop! You've fallen twice back to the tricycle. You don't know how to ride that bike because people made you believe in yourself. My friends, I want to close it out. At least this session. We're going to have some Q&A. But I want to close it out by reminding you that we reclaim young people when we understand that they all need something called CPR. Now the C happens to be your compassion. It is your commitment. Your ability to change. And I think Shaw said it best when he reminded us, if you can't change your mind, you can't change anything. It's also your consistent display of caring. Children need to know we care enough to give our very best. The P stands for persistence. Keep in mind, my friends, persistence is a learned behavior, but you can't teach it unless you already have it. It is our patience. I'll never forget a, a woman who told me, she said, Crystal, if you studied a third as much time as you spend jumping double dutch, you'd be a genius. Now, I admit I was a double dutch queen. Four years in a row, had to work on my moves. But I took her up on it, turned my life around. I'm still grateful to a teacher who told me, she said, Crystal, she said, everybody gets the same 24 hours in every day. And it's what you do with your 24 that will determine where you go in life. I mean, I'm so serious, my friends. Had it not been for Merchants of Hope who wanted my life, there's no telling where I would be today. And you see, once they convinced me that there really was a high road for this poor black girl, I got excited. So excited that I started putting in the time. And lo and behold, came out of high school at the age of 16 with four scholarships. I was so grown. Came out of college at 19. I was real grown at 19. Got married at 19. In fact, many of my friends claim I went to college looking for my MRS, you know, so I could leave with my BMW. My black man working. Got one to look like Harry Belafonte, too. You know I thought I'd arrived. But a year and a half after we were married, my husband and I moved east from the Midwest. We made that move with two suitcases between us, had everything we owned. We made that move with $200.16, a baby in a car that we just prayed would get us over the mountains. Got to New Jersey, and within two short years, we'd accumulated all the material accoutrements of success. Suddenly, we had two cars. Both of them ran real good. We had two kids. They ran real good, too. But one night, we were having a private party. Our children were in Chicago with their grandparents. This, this was our last weekend together before the children were returned home, and we decided to have a private party, just the two of us. We got some sparkling apple cider. That's a little gourmet deli platter from the place that sold the cider, and that night we got on the subject of how our lives had been turned around. And we realized both of us had made it to life's high road because one merchant of hope after another had taken the time to make the difference. In the midst of our excitement, we ran out of apple cider. My husband said, I'll jog to the store, I'll get a few more bottles, and I'll jog right back. But on his way jogging right back, he was approached by three young drug addicts. And in the process of robbing him, they blew his brains out. I didn't find out until the next morning, and I want you to know I went from being totally on top of the world to being lower than you could even imagine. And it was at that point in my life that I learned the meaning of the R word. And the R in CPR is for resilience. My friends, the truth is many of our children are going to give up on themselves too soon. 
The truth is, many of them are going to fall down and feel that they'll never be able to rise up, but they can stand tall and they can rise above all of that. I'm grateful to those merchants of hope who taught me to re how to be resilient. And you see, more, the more I resisted, the more they persisted. So much so that in two years, they not only restored my hope, they replenished my faith, resurrected my soul. Two years after that tragedy, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, finishing up requirements for a doctorate in education. I came face to face with my husband's killer in a court of law. And I tell you, I have no anger toward that young boy because I realized long before he pulled that trigger, something inside of him had already died. My friends, the truth is, many of our children start down that low road because they're already leading a dead life. We must understand, and I wish, I hope that you all realize, you can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. You can humiliate or humor, you can hurt or you can heal. In so many ways, you'll determine whether young people feel humanized or dehumanized. My friends, I know when you're down, I'm sure you're willing to reach up. I just hope that when you're up, you're still willing to reach down. Now having said all of that, I want to stop this portion of the presentation and open it up for questions. Thank you. 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 Thank you, Dr. Kirkendall. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating here at the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Dan Little, moderator of the Town Hall Forum. Let me say to those on, who are listening on the radio that the next Town Hall Forum will be May the 7th, and the speaker will feature Her Excellency Judge Gabrielle Kirk McDonald, Chief Judge, War Crimes Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, speaking on War Crimes, World Ethics on Trial. May 7th, it will be held in the Wesley United Methodist Church at 101 East Grant Street, just next to the Minneapolis Convention Center. This sanctuary will be under renovation at that time. Today's guest, the one you've just heard, is Dr. Crystal Kirkendall, who has just spoken on the topic, Strategies for Reclaiming Black and Hispanic Students. And the ushers are now collecting your questions here in the sanctuary, and as they do so, those of you who listening, are listening on the radio may want to call in a question for Dr. Kirkendall. The area code is 612-332-3421. 612-332-3421. Now, Dr. Kirkendall, if you're ready, yes. we'll see what the questions are. The sorters are sorting. Here's the first one. In what communities have you su seen success in using your strategies? Do you work with school boards, individual schools, or teacher seminars? Well, let me take the last part of that question first. I work with anyone who seeks my assistance. Um, school boards, school districts, community organizations, churches, everyone. I've seen a lot of success using those strategies, and in fact, many organizations wherein I've worked, and I, I, could, I could name a lot of different cities. I, I've used strategies working with young people uh, in various junior high schools across the country, middle schools. 
But I can certainly tell you that in, in places like Fort Worth, Texas, where at a school called Four Seasons, where young girls attend Four Seasons during the year because they're pregnant, I've seen success with these strategies. I've seen them actually even in my church, and I put a plug in here for Shiloh Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., where I do a lot of volunteer work. I can tell you about young people I'm mentoring in the Washington, D.C. area where I've put forth these strategies, and young people who had given up on themselves last year are now claiming a future as doctors and lawyers. So I can tell you, these strategies work if we're willing to work them. Here's another question. If people with whom you're working resist your help, what do you do then? You keep trying. Because understand, many young people who have already given up on themselves will resist your help initially. Keep in mind, my friends, what I said about persistence. It is a learned behavior. You can't teach it if you don't already have it. I resisted help all of my life until I was convinced that the person who was really trying to help me was really serious about helping me. It is a natural thing when you're drowning. It is a natural thing when you're hopeless to deny anyone who wants to assist you. But my friends, we have to understand that if we back away, there's no more hope. So you have to persist and you have to let them know, I'm not giving up on you, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for the long haul. What works in trying to help teachers or teach teachers to be merchants of hope? Oh boy, I would tell you, read the book and then reread the book. And, and I'm serious, I'm not saying it just to put a plug in for the book, but there's, there's so many detailed strategies in the book. And, and this is not a pat answer that I can give you because it requires a long-term training program. I do a lot of work with school districts around the country and I can tell you that if I go in for one presentation, I usually ask those who are administrators in that district to follow up, to monitor. In the book, we have all kinds of worksheets and set strategies, and we have things that teachers can use to monitor their progress. So it requires extensive staff development, and it requires, first of all, a commitment and an attitude change, because if you believe that you will not make a difference, guess what? You won't make a difference. We have to understand the power that we have as Merchants of Hope and understand children need what we have to offer. A couple questions uh, together. Please comment on parental role in children's um, chances for success. And second, should public schools teach values not taught elsewhere? First of all, parents are the first teachers and parents have a very unique role. Uh, when I wrote my book, it was written first as a parent, second as an educator, third as an attorney, because my area of expertise as an attorney is juvenile justice. But parents have to build on children's strengths. Everything I said today, parents have to do first. Keep in mind, parents have to appreciate what their children bring. There are many parents who overlook their own children's strengths because they're so keyed in on their weaknesses and their deficiencies. But we also have to understand that our roles mean working with them with homework, helping them to appreciate what life is all about, teaching those values. But I have to also caution us to understand there are many parents who simply are still children themselves. I don't care what their age is. Many parents don't know what it is they're supposed to be doing. So do we condemn the children? No, we all take upon our responsibilities as merchants of hope, as a community that cares to reach out. And we all have to understand that I don't care if your interaction with a child is just a couple of minutes. 
Believe me, in those few minutes, you can lay a foundation that lets this child know they're cared about, they're loved, they're appreciated, and that there is hope in their lives. Have you any stories about working with parents who need merchants of hope so that they in turn may um, work more openly with their kids? I have a lot of stories. One I will tell you, I, um, several years ago in, in a county in Maryland, Dorchester County, Maryland, I work with parents of Even Star children. Those of you who are familiar with Head Start may not know about there is an Even Star. Well, the parents of the Even Star children were all parents who themselves had dropped out of school. This is a classic example of, of parents who are raising children and, and the parents, many of them were recovering addicts. Many of these parents were unemployed, had no clue as to what they were supposed to be doing. But through a, a, a three-month um, experience, I worked and provided training to these parents. And I will tell you this, most of them who were taking their GEDs, in fact, I think only one parent did not pass the first time she took it. When I left those parents, they gave me a huge card with a picture of a rose on it that they had drawn themselves. And it said, thank you for helping us to blossom. Many parents need training themselves, and we have to provide that as a community as well. Do you feel that the increase in the number of African-American males in special education is a result of teachers not having necessary skills or desire to teach them? I think that has a great deal to do with it. Keep in mind, my friends, we're all products of our own culture, our own upbringing. Very often we have children who have been raised in a culture or a subculture different from ours. It's not unusual to find children who have developed communicative norms that are simply different from mainstream. Not unusual to find children who have developed cultural norms that are different. Not unusual to find children whose behavioral norms simply reflect another culture or subculture. All too often when people are confused by these differences in behavioral norms or communicative norms or cultural norms, we put a label on them and all too often that label is called BD, behavioral disorder or sometimes even LD, learning disability. What I have found out and understand, I adopted a little boy. I didn't tell you about my children. But 12 years ago, I had a, a blessing. We adopted a little boy who is learning disabled. My son is auditory deficit disorder, attention deficit disorder, and he is dyslexic. But you see, we've made a decision that we will love all of the chemicals out of that little body. And my, children, my child is a special ed learner. But I have learned children who are LD simply learn differently. And unless they are taught differently, we're not going to get results. So our teachers do have to be prepared to teach children who learn differently. They have to develop a teaching style that is really congruent with the learning style of that child. And we have to also understand that children who very often are called BD are simply children who are modeling the behavior that is unique to their own culture or subculture. This is directed to you by name. Well, they're all directed to you, but this one specifically. I am the only African-American educator in my school, and I try to share my life and experiences with my students and colleagues to enlighten their cultural awareness in a dis district with an increasing minority population. Sometimes I feel very hopeless. Do you have any advice I can take back to help me be resilient and not lose hope when I'm the only voice? If the teachers don't understand, how will the teachers then teach children the importance of cultural diversity? First of all, whoever you are, I commend you. But understand, you will not be the only one for a while. You will not be the only one forever. Keep in mind also, if you only touch one life in that school, 
it is worth your being there. Because that one life will touch another and will touch another. If you only change one heart of the other teachers that are in that school, keep in mind that one changed heart is worth your being there. Understand, it's going to take time. We didn't get in this mess overnight. And what I advocate, and, and all too often, I mentioned to you when I started how important attitudes are. You see, when teachers don't believe they can make a difference, they don't make a difference. And I don't care how much money you pump into a school, unless we're willing to change how they see their children, we're not going to change how children learn and grow. So, that person who asked that question, understand, if, you, if there is an increasing minority population in that district, you will be, uh, you will have a lot of company very soon. But regardless of how many others join you in this quest, you just keep touching lives every day that you're there, one soul at a time, and believe me, you will see results. Can you, can you recommend any literature that you know of which addresses these issues, which is accessible to students? Hmm. There are a lot of books that are accessible to students, um, certainly. I don't know how many of you have, have read Chicken Book for the Teenage Chicken Soup for the Teenage Soul. Uh, I enjoyed that one. But I also have found that young people will benefit from books on success, autobiographies of people who have overcome a lot, get children inspired. And, 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 and believe me, I have had more requests even for my book from high school students who are in, engaged in peer tutoring programs. We have to realize, you know, as, as one who works with prisons and who works with young people who very often uh, wind up on the other side of the law, I know the power of, of peer tutoring, the power of, of peer development. And so we have to understand that when our children come to us and they want literature, uh, we have to expose them not only to biographies, but let them read what you're reading. Let them read what it is that got you excited about life. They're able to deal with that too. How can we help students succeed in math and science with limited supplies and resources in the classroom? What you want to do is, is tie math and science into their day-to-day -day reality. I don't care how limited your resources are, you've got some resources in terms of life experiences. And what I have found is that when you are able to tie in the learning to their reality, instead of looking at a, a, a word question in a book that deals with, with Farmer John and, and the number of chickens that he has, get these children to talk about day-to-day -day experiences, you know, experiences going to the store, experiences riding a bus. Uh, keep in mind, at a Southeast school in Washington, D.C., a science teacher actually taught a lesson on inertia by, by looking at what happens when a gun is fired and a bullet leaves that gun. Children could relate to that. Now it sounds horrible to us, but keep in mind that's their reality. And when you tie learning into their reality, you get them more excited about the subject matter at hand and you also help them to realize how that can be used in their own lives. Keep in mind also the children are very curious about math and science. And it's only when we would let them know that this is part of their daily experiences that they will get more excited about learning when they understand what biology really covers and that chemistry is something that they deal with every day, they will seek knowledge about those subjects. We're in what some people experience as an economic upturn. 
We see, however, a widening gap between haves and have-nots. Is this going to alienate kids more, and what about their mental health in this situation? Kids are alienated when, they, when we dangle all of these trappings before them, but we deny them the excess or, or, or means of getting those things. We wonder why children turn down life's low road. Well, they do that when they're convinced that all of the things that they think of uh, as, as indicators of success will be denied them. So what we do have to do, and that's what this is all about, is get them to understand that they can achieve those means through a legitimate use of their strengths. Keep in mind that the, the gap between haves and have-nots will get worse. And, and don't believe that, that for a second the children will be satisfied to have nothing in a land of plenty. They will get theirs and yours too through the wrong way if they're not given an opportunity for legitimate means of success. That's what it's all about. Are you optimistic about the future? And if you are, how come? Extremely optimistic. Extremely optimistic. And keep in mind where I have been. I have buried a husband who was a victim of this gang and drug violence. And yet, I believe that as long as there are committed folks who care enough to do enough, I believe that as long as there are people who live and breathe like me who understand that these children are not born bad, they develop negative habits because they haven't been trained properly. I believe very much in the power of a nation, the richest country on the planet. I believe in our power as compassionate individuals to dig down in our own souls and realize our own success is not success unless we're willing to bring somebody along with us. I am optimistic because I believe in the power of people. Here's one I think is important. We'll get it in now because time is uh, closing down on us. How could someone get in touch with you to speak at a local church or school? Just call me. And, and I, don't mind, I, I, I don't mind giving out a phone number. 301-299-2057. Let's have it again. 301-299-2057. If you want to write me, I gave out an address earlier, I will repeat it. K-I-R-K, which stands for Creative with a K, and Innovative Resources for Kids Incorporated, P.O. Box 60115, Potomac, Maryland, 20859. There you go. Thank you all so much. You are merchants of hope, remember that. You've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum here from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis.